0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President, Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse. AANP's new monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. Telehealth has been a steadily growing means of providing access to care for thousands of Americans and nurse practitioners have been at the forefront. But with the COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing guidelines, telehealth use has exploded and many providers and government entities are scrambling to keep up. On this episode of NP Pulse, we welcome three very special guests and experts in the world of telehealth. We'll speak with nurse practitioners, Tearsini Carlisle Davis and Robin Ahrens, and AANP Director of Reimbursement and Regulatory Affairs, Frank Harrington, about the growth of telehealth, reaching rural populations, their experiences with implementation, and reimbursement for telehealth services. I'm so excited to welcome our first guest, co-chair of the AANP Health Informatics and Telehealth Community, Nurse Practitioner, Tirsany Carlisle-Davis. So welcome to NP Pulse.
1: Thank you so much, Sophia. I mean, it's uh, such a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm honored to have been asked um, to do this podcast. I love talking about telehealth and hope that um, I have something that everyone is wanting to hear.
0: I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> you know, COVID-19 has has really brought just the uh, telehealth to the, to the forefront, but you've been doing telehealth for years now. Uh, isn't that correct?
1: Yes, um, I have actually been doing telehealth uh, seven years now. This is my seventh year. Um, But the University of Mississippi Medical Center, where I work, has been doing telehealth, we say officially, uh, since 2003. (laughs) We were doing a little bit before then, but that's the year that we created with, you know, the beginning of our telehealth program that most people know about.
0: And uh, that's, there are a lot of rural communities there in Mississippi. And are those the communities that you're serving?
1: Yes, we serve the entire state of Mississippi, so it's not only the rural areas. Um, But if anyone, you know, if you don't know about Mississippi, um, we only have three areas that could even remotely be called urban, and that is (laughs) the extreme north Mississippi, which is up near Memphis, um, uh, the metro Jackson area, and then the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And everything else is considered rural. Um, But one of the things that I like to uh, mention when we talk about rurality and access to care and all of that is that while we know that the people in the rural areas don't have access to the same things we have in the urban areas, there are some access issues in the urban areas, you know, as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you can have a specialist on every corner. But if that specialist is not accessible, if you can't get an appointment or, you know, um, then you still have an access issue. And so telehealth is answering um, a lot of issues um, as it relates to access in both rural and urban.
0: Absolutely. And so what got you uh, started in, in telehealth? And, and what um, are the things that you see now that people are doing, that the mistakes that you've, you've already learned and solved? What are, what are those types of things?
1: Okay, so I got started in telehealth, um, like I said, officially for me, um, was seven years ago. Um, I'm a family nurse practitioner. Uh, I worked in the rural areas. Um, so I have that perspective of actually living, living and working um, in a rural community. I came to Jackson and worked at the emergency department um, here, and that's actually where I met um, Dr. Christy Henderson. Um, we worked together in the ED, and they were already doing teleemergency. So I was around it, although I didn't really participate in it at that time. Um, I went on to do other things. And then um, she called me back. And I came back here to the medical center um, to work primarily to build the school and corporate telehealth programs um, in the Center for Telehealth. Um, So that allowed me the opportunity to really get into the rural community and see what the rural communities um, needed. one of the things that I, I was happy to have worked with is um, pioneering or or doing pilots in the schools. Um, reimbursement uh, poses many problems for us sometimes in the world of telehealth. Oh, and I'm speaking pre-COVID, by yeah, the way, course, because yeah. right now, <laughs> right now, now in the are COVID good. world, it's not as big of an issue. But pre-COVID, we had lots of reimbursement issues. Um and so we um were able to do quite a few pilots in the rural community in the schools. Um and that was really um really exciting
0: um, for us. And so you were obviously showing that telehealth uh, brings access to care for people and with yes. primary and specialty care appointments.
1: Absolutely. Um we you know many would be surprised at how many people do not have a primary care provider. Um, Although we push it, you know, in our world, we tell people you you need a primary care provider, even if you only see them once a year, you need someone who knows you and who knows your health. Well, that's true for our children too. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's true for those that live in rural areas, as they often have many other, you know, disparities, you know, the social determinants of health. We all know about, you know, those things and healthcare issues are very prominent in the rural areas, but... Although healthcare issues are very prominent, healthcare providers are not, not <laughs> um, prominent in the rural areas. So, what we have done here, um, in particular, is we have used telehealth or technology to leverage the, the staff that we have here at the medical center. So, we're we're kind of leveling the playing field in the world of of healthcare, um, so to speak, by bringing those providers to areas where they might not necessarily want to live but that they do have the capacity or the
0: bandwidth to serve. And so that's all over Mississippi. All over Mississippi. And so you do you know anything about, uh, as far as the improved, improved access, do you have any outcome data? Or I'm sure you've studied this a lot.
1: Yeah, we have studied it. And two things that I'll bring up. Um, one, I know you all have probably heard about our remote patient monitoring program, the Mississippi Diabetes Telehealth Network. And what that program was, was we... Um, provided patients that lived in the Mississippi Delta with iPads and peripheral devices, um, and they did daily health sessions. So we used the diabetes self-management education um, created by the American Diabetes Association, and we provided these patients with little tidbits of information each day. So it's the same curriculum that they would have received in a live class, but when you're thinking about disparities, you think about the inability to travel, you know, the um, uncertainty of what their day would be like, you know, Mm -hmm. is this someone who is relying on someone else, you know, to take them to a class. But then also, you know, that's an overload of information for some people, you know, to sit in a class and to listen, you know, for an hour. So by using this um, tool, we were able to give them like three slides a day or maybe a five minute video, you know, of information so they're receiving the same thing that a person would receive in an in-person class, but it's in the privacy of their own home mm-hmm. and on their own time. You know, because we know that those educational classes might be at nine AM in the morning. Well, if they work, they can't do that. Yeah. Or they may be, you know, at six o'clock in the evening. Depending on their work, they may not be able to do that. Yeah. Um so um that provided access to that diabetes self management education to people who were not not you know accustomed to being able to do that but also what it did was it put a nurse in the home with the patients virtually Mm -hmm. so the patients were able to do their um, biometrics you know check their blood sugars do the education we did ask all of the patients um questions each day like do you feel any worse today than you did yesterday and the system uses branching logic to find more about that patient's experience um, with their condition and our nurses serve as coaches, you know, to kind of coach them through the process, all individualized coaching, though. We don't do the, you know, 1800 calorie ADA diet uh-huh. sheets, and, you know, and ask them to eat all of that food that they've never eaten or that's not available to them.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, so when can't you think afford.
1: about, you know, you think about food deserts and things like that, they are real and we have many of those here um, in Mississippi. So the outcomes, I'll shoot you know, straight across the field and tell you about the outcomes. So these patients were on that program for a year. Um, our goal was to reduce their A1Cs by one, but about halfway through the study, we had already reduced their A1Cs by 1.7. Wow! So we got a, quite a bit of attention from that and um, it resulted in us getting legislation for reimbursement for remote patient monitoring. Um, halfway through the study. We have done a follow-up study, and those results will be um, released pretty soon. But I can tell you that um, most of the patients did maintain um, their good outcomes. Um, All of them, what we found in that study was that if there were going to be a benefit from remote patient monitoring, that it would be achieved within three to four months. Mm -hmm. And then regardless of their engagement, after that three or four months, they maintained that benefit, you know. So some of them dropped down from like 9.2 to seven. And then after the three to four months, when they reached their goal, (laughs) you know, even if they didn't do the sessions every day, three months later, it was still around seven. And three months after that, it was still around seven that's so amazing. you know that could be exactly that could be the the meaning of um, life and death you know for some of our diabetic patients living in the mississippi delta
0: absolutely and you know i i lived in a rural community um about an hour from jackson so i, I understand <laughs> food deserts i used when i there was a small grocery store and I would have to check the labels on everything um, for their expiration date when I would go to the grocery store there in that rural community because half the stuff was expired and it was hard to get fresh fruits and vegetables and things like that. And transportation for these communities is so critical when they have to rely on a ride uh, to get anywhere and to see a specialist that might be one, two, three hours away. it's, It's almost physically impossible. And then getting those appointments when the appointment might be six months to a year out that's that's critical time so telehealth is really you know you've you've given a great example of how telehealth can really impact the lives of patients in the rural community but even in the urban communities who who lack access to these specialist providers
1: correct correct because they're you know it's more than being able to get an appointment you know as you just mentioned you may be able to get an appointment next week if you can't get to it, it is not serving you
0: absolutely and then
1: you know if you think about um you know I, I tell this story a lot too when i worked in the rural community i worked in a small primary care practice and it was me and, and when a physician working there together and when we would have to tell patients you're going to have to go to jackson i mean if you could just see the despair uh-huh. really the you big know city you're right and it wasn't always that they couldn't get to that initial appointment in their minds they needed to know if i go to this appointment then what am yeah. i going to have to continue to go to jackson you know for follow up appointments and then when you think about their experience let's say they do make it to that appointment and they do have to go to follow up appointments it's an all day affair
0: it is literally you know? an all day affair <laughs> it's yeah. literally
1: an all day affair so when they have to ask someone to take off work you know even their children to take off work to pick them up to bring them to their appointment you know, then you gotta have lunch, you know, and Mm -hmm. all of this, you know, it can be burdensome for them. So through telehealth, you know, and again, let me me go back. Telehealth is not the answer for everything. You know, you have to figure out where it fits. So Mm -hmm. in many of our specialty practices where they have found that it fits is follow-up appointments. Those appointments where they're just checking in on the patient, where they can ask the patient a few questions, where they can look in on them And assess, you know, their progress. So that's one of the ways that telehealth is really helping people in the rural community.
0: And and that's such a great example. Now, Teresina, you're the co-chair of the telehealth and informatics community here at AANP. Yes, Um, I'm sure there's been a lot more uh, chatter. We've had a lot of members join. Can you share with us the things that nurse practitioners are talking about and sharing now uh, as it relates to all these new changes? And we have, you know, 64% of NPs now are reporting that they've integrated telehealth into their practices. What are you seeing as you talk to um, our colleagues?
1: Yeah, one of the main things right now at the moment is the uncertainty of what happens when all of these regulations and these relaxed restrictions go back, or are they going to go back? um to normal Um, initially you know uh, immediately when COVID hit and we entered this pandemic the questions were centered around more like we don't know what to do you know how do we incorporate this and of course um at that time we still had you know a lot of these regs in place so the questions were can i practice across state lines um you know does my collaborator have to do telehealth as well for me to be able to do telehealth all of these things that have been issues all the time, but now they, they got more um, attention because we had to do telehealth. We, we mm-hmm. didn't have a choice. You know, I tell people all the time, my job literally changed
0: overnight. Overnight, yeah.
1: Yes, I went from begging people to try telehealth, to consider telehealth, to people beating the door down, asking, how do I do this? I don't know <laughs> Help where to me. start. Yeah. Right. Even within our institution, believe it or not, <laughs> even though uh-huh. it was right at their fingertips, you know, for time. For all this time, time, we had to stand up, the entire institution, um, a telehealth program within a matter of days. But again, like I said, right now, most of the questions are around uh, reimbursement and then asking what can they do to make sure that some of these regulations stay the way they are, you know, or at least are not as restrictive as they were before.
0: And Um, so what is your answer for that? what can they do my
1: answer for that is to tell their story because i believe that um prior to covid um there were lots of concerns you know among payers that there would be abuse you know if we had more relaxed restrictions or that while we look at it as telehealth providing more access being a good thing you know for some that means more, more access visits. yeah more visits more money yeah but that's not always the case. And I think that if we were to tell our stories, to document, you know, the data, like, yes, mm-hmm. our telehealth visits went up, but how did we use telehealth? What types of visits were they? And then our telehealth visits went up, but then what, what else happened? Were we able to What was to the get... impact? That's right. And impact. Were, yeah. were we able to get more patients into the system that really needed to be in the clinic? Was our Mm -hmm. acuity level higher in those that actually came to the physical location? Because that's something, you know, for us not to take lightly that our clinics may be bogged down with people that are much lower acuity that could be handled at home and blocking space, you know, that could be used for those that really need that in person care
0: or new patient Um, appointments.
1: New patient appointments, exactly. So it can actually help you grow your practice in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. It's not always about, you know, trying to get the same patients back. You know, we want to grow our patient base. Uh-huh. Um, and telehealth is a way to do that.
0: Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of that, those conversations in the NP community. And I think if if NPs are interested, they can certainly join the telehealth and informatics community at aanp.org forward slash communities. And I think it's a great space for people to uh share their stories ask questions you're you're the expert you've been doing this for seven years now um you had it mastered long before covid well so. and we
1: have lots of other people in in our community that i consider experts And oh, mean absolutely. we all have had you know we've all had different experiences you know different areas you know where we work the landscapes in the states are different um, and so I, that's one of the things that I love about the community is that Susan, uh, Dr. Susan Kennedy-Buck and myself are the the co-chairs of that committee. We don't consider ourselves the only two experts, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, in the community. Yeah. We go to this community ourselves and say, hey, y'all, you know, what are y'all doing? You know, mm-hmm. or we've had some questions about this. We know that some of you have experienced this or have some insight into this. Please share it um, with us. And so... That is actually one of the things that we love about that community. So we certainly want people who still feel like they have a lot to learn, but we also want people who feel like they have a lot to share.
0: Absolutely, um, it, it's
1: where it's very um, it's a welcoming environment, and we're just excited to see how much it has grown.
0: Absolutely, and uh, you know, Terri, I appreciate your expertise and you coming to talk to us today. I know you've presented it conferences uh, for us for years because of your your expertise and your knowledge in the area of telehealth and informatics. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today here at NP Pulse.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: Our next guest is an expert in telehealth and a longtime contributor to AANP. Please help me welcome nurse practitioner Robin Ahrens. Robin, welcome to NP Pulse. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, what I want to talk to you about, Robin, we've had um, so many NPs now since COVID started. um, So many NPs are now using telehealth. In fact, we had a a recent study that AANP did uh, found that 64% of NPs uh, because of COVID are now using telehealth in their practices. But you've been actually using telehealth for, for years now, isn't that? right?
2: Yes. I started um, my, the practice that I am currently in, uh, which uses telehealth exclusively in 2015. So um, just over five years.
0: And that was long before any of us even uh, had an understanding about what telehealth is. How did you start getting, um, start your practice in telehealth? Well,
2: it was, it's kind of a funny story. And I always kind of believe that Um, Sometimes fate leads us into the direction that we're supposed to go. I was um, in my current employment as a faculty um, nurse practitioner at our university. I was applying for a grant that had telehealth uh, as a part of the grant with it. And really at our facility, a lot of us knew about telehealth. We've kind of had the periphery of telehealth, but none of us actually utilized telehealth exclusively. So as I was... Looking at this grant, I thought maybe I should actually go and talk to the experts that we had in our community. And they actually had a PRN spot open um, and encouraged me to apply for it prior to getting the grant. So I um, applied for a PRN position and uh, got selected to go into their geriatric service line. So, really went into telehealth, not really having a whole lot of knowledge about telehealth, not having really any expectations other than i knew i was applying for this grant and that it included telehealth and that this opportunity kind of presented itself so after that that's when i got my start in it and ever since then i've just kind of grown and fallen in love with this type of healthcare modality and you're in
0: south dakota right i am in south dakota correct so tell me about telehealth in south dakota that's a lot different than when you know before covid uh, telehealth was really reserved for people in rural communities and things like that. And and it's really opened up now in that any patient anywhere at any time can have a telehealth visit. But talk to me about what what the traditional telehealth was like. How is it for you and your practice and your patients and the geography? And, and how does that all work? So
2: in our state, um, we have a... Um, to get from one end to the other of the state it takes about four and a half to five hours if you're driving on the interstate when in our state we have two major we call them cities but in the rest of the state they are the nation they may not be considered to be cities um, with it that serve as kind of our regional hubs and so what would happen is if you lived in a rural community our specialists would actually get on a plane and fly to your community and do outreach at the community get back on their plane and fly back home Um, and you can tell from with flights and things like that that took a lot of time away from seeing patients so our state adopted telehealth really early because we knew that if we could see these patients via technology it would save not only on transportation costs of flying the provider plus nursing staff And everything with them Um, but it would also provide a way to see more patients in that community as well as maybe patients in the home hub area so from that um, we developed our EERs um, that we had at our hub and then that just grew to include ICUs um, and then it eventually came to the source line that I'm in which is geriatrics which is nursing homes. So in our state, if you're uh, in a long-term care facility and you get sick in the middle of the night, you may have to drive an hour on slippery roads or um, face weather in order to get care at a critical, uh, critical access hospital. So what we thought was if we could put telehealth into the nursing homes, then we could prevent patients from having to leave the nursing homes in order to seek care at these critical access hospitals, which would reduce again, health care costs, but it also have more timely health care. We could see the patients in their um, home facilities or their long-term care residents. And we know that from the literature, most, um, visits to the ER from long-term care visits facilities may not necessarily be emergencies. They might be, you know, a UTI or they might be something that's very simple that we could treat in house without having them go to the ER um, and exposing them to the weather that we have. So um, we've been really lucky in our state that we've had some um, forward-thinking governors that have laid down access for telehealth in our state and that we are really well-connected in order to provide these services to the members of our state.
0: And so you you had emergency room,
2: yeah, that was our first one is um, and we've kind of grown from there so the first first ones that we did is we put cameras in the emergency room settings. So we would mount them on the walls and if somebody would come in that would ha- need emergency services and perhaps the emergency that was coming in. Exceeded the scope of the healthcare provider that was in there, or perhaps they just didn't have a lot of traumas, or they didn't have a lot of that diagnosis because they were in a smaller community. They could uh, touch a button on the wall; the camera would light up. They would be connected to a, a ER physician, as well as ER nurses um, and staff. So, and really, it was is it was meant to provide support to that hometown provider of providing the second opinion or arranging for transport if they needed to be transported to a larger hospital. But it also was if they were doing a code situation that the nurses were able to be the recorder and provide that update of okay it looks like you're compressing a little bit shorter um, or you need to go a little deeper or it's time for epi. So they were using um, us as a extension of their ER services and from there it's grown. So now in the area that I work, uh, we have the EICUs, so we oversee ICUs. We have the senior care um, realm, which is where I, ha- where I work. We have um, pharmacy where they can do telehealth pharmacy. We have psychiatry. We have school nurse. Uh, we have consults. And then we have a hospitalist
0: program as well. So telehealth is pretty widespread there in South Dakota. Yes. And it's been well established for, for years now.
2: Yes, we'll say we've we've kind of grown and we keep looking at different areas that we can expand to that can help provide that service and really bring that healthcare to that patient.
0: And so um, did you recently get, you were awarded a $1.2 million grant?
2: Yes. So the grant that I was talking about um, when I first applied for my position, um, we were awarded that grant. And from that grant, we worked with our healthcare partners, and what we were realizing is that there was um, providers that were like me, um, where they graduated from their training, and the, telehealth was not a concept that was brought forth in our curriculum. It was not; it was something that was being done, but it wasn't being done widespread, so it wasn't included. Um, but then, in our community, when they when People graduated and they began to work, it was kind of an expectation that they understood telehealth, that they were able to provide care. So there was that knowledge gap between um, getting out of school and then providing that care and doing telehealth. So, what our grant aimed to focus at is um, our nurse practitioner students that were already coming up through the program. We were going to train them on telehealth what is the best practices, how to be on camera, and how to assess the patient use in telehealth but then we also created modules that could be used for providers that are already in practice but maybe needs a little bit of a refresher on how to be on camera and how to perform telehealth um, services to patients so working with our healthcare providers about what is the needs that they see in their providers that may not have been exposed to telehealth before coming in, working with them and then um what how can we help them with these modules so we made six modules that kind of focus on just the very basics of telehealth um, so they have a good background for it so when they get into practice they can continue to build upon it
0: and that sounds so great you know I don't think any curriculum uh, whether it's nurse practitioner physician PA I don't think any curriculum offers training on telehealth because you know before COVID. Again, it was something reserved for states like South Dakota, who, who were truly rural, and, and uh, the cities were few and far between. So um, they needed that telehealth, and so now it's it's definitely more widespread. And I think everybody probably needs uh, a little training. We've we've all been kind of thrown into it, and we're we're doing the best we can. Um, you mentioned best practices. What are some best practices that you, when you're talking to people? about telehealth, what are some of the best practices that you, um, you recommend?
2: So some of the best practices that we've recommended that we've had to really focus on, um, the COVID um, pandemic has kind of helped us with that because people are being more aware of their surroundings anyway when they're on camera. Um, you know, as, as we go into Zoom meetings and things like that, people are aware of noises that are in their environments and they are aware of their backgrounds. So whatever they're presenting to that public, um, but before, before we did a lot of Zoom meetings, um, there was not that, that focus on, I'm, I'm doing a visit one-on-one using technology, but what is really around me? So what is in my background? What can the patient see that may not be a good visual for a healthcare practitioner? <laughs>
0: may, may not be professional.
2: Yeah. And so <laughs> I always kind of give the, 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 scenario as as somebody that has been on a lot of zoom meetings but i've i remember being on a a zoom meeting with somebody and they had a poster that was strategically placed behind their head that looked like a monster was coming down and eating the top of their head and that's they intentionally (laughs) did that but it kind of draws me to mind i wanted always wanted to take a picture of it because that just kind of gives you an idea of the background that if you have somebody that's at home and that's the visual that they see is this monster coming around looking like they're going to eat your head i mean that's that's the visual that they have of their healthcare provider. Um, So I think having that as well as developing that rapport over technology, which is sometimes challenging with it. Um, Patients are, they're, they're not feeling well. That's why they're seeing their provider and they're kind of in a vulnerable state. So how can you make them feel comfortable to disclose a lot of information about themselves via technology? And so that's a lot of reassurances that I'm in an closed room, there's nobody else with me. What you say to me is kept confidential just as we're in the room, um, things like that. You know, th- that if I have somebody that's in the room, like if I have a nurse with me or if I have a student with me, they're also on camera and they're able to be seen from that. And that I'm communicating with the patient just as I would with, um, if I'm in the room, if I'm looking at something to the side of me, and the patient can't see what's to the side of me because they're not sitting in front of me but if I had a computer over here and I kept looking over onto their side they're gonna wonder what I'm looking at and so telling them I have a computer off-screen I'm looking at your labs and this is what I'm seeing so they're, they're able to see what we're saying and communicating that with them and providing that reassurance um, and including them in their care as well I think that's the one of the biggest challenges of working telehealth via technologies, we lose that personal touch. Um, so we have to create that personal authentic experience just by using connectivity um, as much as we can via, tele, via the video and our words with it. So sometimes it does take a little bit more time to get to know them and spending a little time. You can't just kind of rush right into your your visit, but you're kind of assessing what's going on in the community and what's going on in their their environment and getting to know them as a person to develop that relationship so they feel comfortable over technology um, another thing that i think that everybody is always concerned about is we always hear about um, cyber attacks and things like that so how can they truly know that why they're talking to me via um, our visit that their healthcare data is very secure as well. So making sure that we're reassuring them about all the safety precautions that is being taken to ensure that nobody's popping in on our visit and that their information is very um, secure with it.
0: Yeah, and I think what's so great, you know, you mentioned our surroundings, which I think is so important, to have a professional, you know, background, and certainly you don't want that uh, image of the monster coming up behind you. That certainly would kind of, if I was a patient, I'd be a little bit concerned about who is this provider that is seeing me. Um, but I think what's so good about telehealth is that when I'm on camera with a patient, I can see their surroundings, and I can see they can show me their, they can bring their their phone or their laptop over and show me their pantry. Um, I can see their living situation. And so actually it's it's almost a doorway into their life that I don't get when I'm in the exam room with them and I can really see what their home surroundings are like. And it helps give me a better idea about, um, you know, issues related to social determinants of health and things like that, that I think are so important. Um, Have you found that as well?
2: I agree. Um, I personally, I haven't done this, but I know of people that work in the health industry that um have actually had them take and and have facetimed um via or skyped whatever modality they're using at the grocery store and when they're picking out foods and things like that to show them what the variety of options they have for their healthy choices because it might not be the same in every um in every location um you know so what we might recommend for uh you know a healthy diet the, the The patient might say i don't have that opportunity in my community i don't have those foods i don't have access to that or i have access to that but it exceeds what i can pay yeah so having a nutritionist or dietitian look and see what is going on like you said in what is in their cupboards and what is in their refrigerator um, what access do they have but then also going on the grocery store um, with them i've actually had um, some colleagues up in North Dakota that have done um, physical mobility so they've looked around the house um, for geriatric patients to see is is there rugs on the floor um, are they able to manage their stairs you know what are they able to cook and are they able to do their activities of daily living because they can actually see that home environment um, and then as technology continues to be um, expanded there's a lot of research now on smart homes um, where you can put sensors in homes for patients that have memory loss and you can have the sensor of telling the stove is left on so after so many minutes the stove turns off um, to prevent that or they can actually track to see where that patient is in their home in order to try to keep them in their houses longer and keep them more um, in their home environments longer by using these technology and seeing how people are, are moving within their environments.
0: That's amazing and and I remember um, uh, last year I heard you speaking about uh, telehealth, and you actually talked about uh, these kits that the patients can buy from Best Buy um, that have and what are in the, what are in those kits
2: so there um, are kits that you can buy and say in Be- Best Buy is in our area that sells them, but it can connect the patients at home to telehealth, so if you go and buy um, the kit which comes with kind of an iPad type of device but then it comes with something that's even smaller than your cell phone that you can hold over your heart and it can um, not only can the provider on the other side when you connect via, um, connect via online they can hear your heart but they can also tell what your pulse rate is um, by listening over the heart you can hold it over your forehead and it can tell you what your temperature is You can hold it over your lungs and it can tell you what um, your lung sounds are are, and what your respiration rate is. Um, It comes with a connector that you can see in the back of the throat. It comes with a connector that you can see in the ears. Um, So it really allows and um, and you can also look at the skin as well. So it's kind of an all-in-one encompassment um, for a fairly reasonable price that as soon as you turn it on and you connect the internet and you say I want to start a visit it's connected already to a centralized hub, where there's a provider ready to see you. Um, And that hub may change in location, various places, depending on what state you're in um, with it. But then you can get your visit at home. But you really have all the essential components for that visit during that time. So there's really very minimal things that, as a provider, that you cannot do a physical assessment on and in order to get a a clear picture of what's going on with that patient
0: and that's just amazing to have that technology Um, those of us that are that are doing telehealth right now don't have the luxury of those uh, that so we're having to observe respirations we're having to to um, do some other things but to actually be able to hear heart heart tones and hear the lung sounds uh, be able to check the vital signs i think that technology is is amazing and i know Um, telehealth is definitely not going anywhere. Uh, It's only going to continue. Um, When I spoke with HHS Secretary Azar um, a few months ago, um, specifically about telehealth, he said, don't worry, telehealth isn't going anywhere. So I really see this as the wave of the future and a way to improve access to care for patients who would otherwise be, go without. And, and it's not just for those in the rural communities anymore. It's for people who are too busy at work and, and can't get away, but they might have a 15-minute uh, break at work and can dial in for a telemedicine visit. And so I really see this as a way of improving access to care for patients um, a, across the United States everywhere, um, not just in those rural communities anymore.
2: Yeah, we, um, I said, we we have a high flu season usually outside of COVID. So we use, also use a lot of telehealth visits to prevent patients from coming in when they're most infectious with flu um, during the winter months because what inevitably happens is you have somebody there for their well child check or their well adult check intermixing with ill patients who are highly contagious. Um, and, you know, so you come in for your well check, visit and you leave and, you know, a few days later you become ill with the flu. So during our, the height of our flu seasons, we'll do a big campaign saying, why don't you utilize telehealth if you think you have the flu, um, because we can assess you and diagnose you over a computer screen to limit your, your exposure to other people in the community. And you can also avoid exposing other people who may be there for healthy visits, um, to
0: be seen as well. So, that's a great idea. And that, that's something that we could all be doing now um, uh, as well, no matter you know, whether you're in South Dakota or here in Louisiana. Um, that might be a good uh, way to practice, uh, especially this year with uh, COVID around as well.
2: Yeah, we've used a lot with our homebound geriatric patients that are at higher risk as well. You know, the patients that you just really do not want to have exposure to anything in the clinic environment. Um, so we, we have set up a lot of our our patients that are more at higher risk and uh, are elderly as well um, to utilize telehealth first. And then if we need to bring them in, it's for very short visits with it.
0: That makes it a lot easier. Get them established over telehealth and then bring them in for the shorter visits. Robin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And um, you know I appreciate you've served as the um, the co-chair for the telehealth uh, specialty practice group at AANP. And um, you've done so much with telehealth in educating our members um, for years now. And so thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's been a great conversation.
2: All right. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Our final guest today is possibly the top expert in the country when it comes to nurse practitioner reimbursement. Here to talk about this subject as it relates to telehealth, let's welcome AANP Director of Reimbursement and Regulatory Affairs, Frank Harrington. Welcome to NP Pulse.
3: Thank you very much and happy to be here.
0: I'm so glad you're here. You know, Frank, COVID has really um, uh, highlighted the the use of telehealth and now we have 64% of nurse practitioners using telehealth in their practice. It's really no longer just for the people in the rural areas. We've Talk to other NPs who are using it um, in community health centers and practices in cities. Uh, they're using it to increase access for psych mental health patients, and they're using it to improve uh, quality indicator outcomes for specific disease uh, problems now. So it's really, really taken off. Can you explain what your role has been as far as reimbursement for telehealth?
3: Sure. And yeah, I absolutely totally agree with that. It's been an enormous um, boon for NPs and all providers really to see the flexibilities that uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, and uh, other pr- and private payers have put in to make sure that telehealth u- utilization could increase during a time when it was really necessary. So we've been working a lot with the administration to provide them with the information that they need to know from our members about how they're using telehealth, what the barriers are, what additional changes could be made, and then the next question is, you know what lessons are we learning during covid nineteen that could be brought outside of the context of the public health emergency and be extended to just care delivery moving forward? So these are all some of the issues that you know we've been having ongoing conversations not only with the administration but with private insurers as well to really uh, make sure that the the benefits from telehealth that have uh, come into play during this this pandemic can be continued and and really uh, perfected to continue to improve care delivery.
0: And so, what types of things are you hearing from NPs as you, you talk to NPs from all over the country? I'm sure.
3: Absolutely, and you know, one to to get back to the first point you made. You know, when we've talked to NPs and when we've surveyed NPs, um, the importance of telehealth and increasing telehealth utilization has been true in both rural and urban communities. And one of the primary barriers to telehealth that existed even before the pandemic um was that medicare would only cover telehealth in rural communities with a, a couple of exceptions and they have waived that during the public health emergency and it has been huge for for providers in metropolitan and urban areas and what's been really interesting in the data that we've gotten back when we've surveyed our members you know those barriers to care that um that people i think oftentimes uh, associate solely with the rural communities are equally true in urban centers um, difficulties with transportation, difficulties getting in to see clinicians. And so we've seen pretty much equal telehealth utilization across the board. So I'd say, you know, number one, um, expanding telehealth so that it is covered by Medicare nationwide has probably been the most important change. And along with that is that, you know, previously, uh, Medicare would only cover telehealth when the patient was in what they call, quote unquote, an improved originating site. So that could be a clinician's office, that could be a hospital. But what it really amounted to is that the patient would have to, to go somewhere in order to receive telehealth, which is somewhat counter, counterintuitive. Yeah. And so now due to COVID-19, Medicare is covering telehealth when the patient remains in their home, um, which again has been an enormous benefit, particularly when you're trying to reduce the amount of contact between patients, clinicians, and and stop the spread of this virus.
0: Exactly, and so I mean I think the key thing is is patients are now able to stay in their home. So, what are some things that you're hearing from CMS uh, now? Uh, what are the things that you've seen over these last several months that they're doing and and uh, their responsiveness? And then what do you see going forward for telehealth?
3: Yeah, so they've they've really been trying to push the limits on you know what they are able to do with their statutory authority to continue as many of these benefits moving forward. Um, some of the changes we just discussed, that that rural-urban split and the originating site, they've been pretty clear that they will require acts of Congress in order for them to make those policies permanent. Even though they really recognize the utility of um, making sure that telehealth is as broadly available as possible. Now, some of the other things that they've been doing are they've really also expanded the services that are that can be covered by Medicare when provided by via telehealth. So they've been continuing to expand both services, the list of services that they'll they'll cover permanently, but also they they put into a place a kind of new category of telehealth services, which are specific to the public health emergency and which they want to continue on a temporary basis. So they're really trying to um, determine what is what are the most clinically useful. Uh, services provided via telehealth and make sure that they can be covered either in perpetuity um, or for at least an extended time period uh, post the public health emergency. One of the concerns that we've raised, and I know a lot of other clinician groups have raised, is if you are saying you cover a service just until the end of the public health emergency, that could end up being a hard stop for providers and patients who rely on that service. So it's really important that even if they don't think a service should be covered permanently. There should be at least kind of a, a slower off-ramp so that the providers and the patients can plan accordingly. Um, the other service that has been discussed a lot because it wasn't previously covered by Medicare uh, were audio-only communications. Um, te- typically, Medicare has determined that for a service to be a covered telehealth service, it has to be an, there has to be an audio and video component. Um, they have heard from so many member from so many patients and so many providers during you know this pandemic that audio only is really, really, really important because so many patients don't have the audio video capabilities, um, whether it be issues with broadband or simply just not having the device necessary to have an audio video telehealth visit. So CMS has been listening to that. Um, they still feel that as a general matter, telehealth services do have to be audio video. Uh, but in this year's fee schedule, they approved what they're referring to as an extended um, an, ex- an extended kind of e-visit where uh, a clinician and their patient will have an extended conversation that's not meant to be in lieu of an in-person visit, but is really meant to assess whether or not an in-person visit is necessary that's longer than previously approved visits. So they're trying to tow that line of uh, continuing audio only in some respect, even though they view, they'd still think there are statutory limitations on how far they can go.
0: And I can tell you from personal experience doing telehealth with my patients. You mentioned the connectivity problems. I would, I would try to start the visit using my um, my EMR, the built-in t- um, you know video capability in the EMR. Mm-hmm. The patients had trouble using it, so then I would have to call them on on Doximity or DoxyMe um, using my cell phone and. Sometimes that their connectivity was horrible and they'd come in and out. And, and so I, we, I would eventually have to just go to using my phone and just calling them directly to do that visit. So I, I definitely see the need of continuing even that telephonic um, uh, visit because I think it is so important to have that contact with the patients.
3: Absolutely. And, and the other piece of that as well is you – know, typically cms also would only approve certain you know technologies for for that audio video telehealth visit you know due to hipaa and other compliance issues but but given the pandemic they have they have also given some flexibility for more use of things like facetime and skype and and modalities that are more common but are less typically used for telehealth but i think there's the expectation that that's not going to be something that's made permanent so as those start to be rolled back there will still really be that need for an audio-only visit when patients don't have access to some of the the ways that telehealth is typically offered.
0: Exactly. So, do you feel like CMS is being responsive to uh, what uh, all all the advocacy efforts that you guys have put forth?
3: I do. I certainly think that they they have been listening and they've been pretty clear as to, you know, they they know that um, telehealth has been extremely important. It's probably the most widely reported change to them during the pandemic that people have been asking them to to maintain um in certain respects. But and they've also been clear where they feel like they're statutorily uh limited. And so they, you know, they have been been clear with the provider community as to what we can do legally and what we where we would really need Congress to step in and take some action.
0: And yeah, you mentioned an act of Congress. You were talking about a literal act of Congress <laughs> yes, to, to a do. Literal that.
3: act of Congress.
0: So what are some things, um, you know, we talked about some things that might be temporary that they might end up rolling back and things that will be permanent. Can you give some examples of the services that are per, uh, probably the most common ones that you see that would be uh, permanent and then those that would be temporary?
3: Sure. So they've, they have finalized um, that they're going to make permanent certain group psychotherapy visits. Uh, more psych- my, more psychology services, home and decilia, dom- domiciliary visits that previously had not been approved um, permanently, and then they've also made and those are typically for the established patients. And then they've also made some changes on temporary basis basis for new patients to receive those services. So they're trying to to really um, figure out what is most clinically appropriate. But they put together a good list of these services, you know, in the most recent fee schedule, and we're trying to make sure that our members are aware of everything that's available to them moving forward. So the resources with the full list of services, you know, we're promoting them through the Government Affairs Update and eBulletin and posting these on our website so that our members know what will be available to them moving forward.
0: That'll be great. And I'm sure we can link some of those resources to this podcast as well for our listeners. So if, if I could take uh, five takeaways for nurse practitioners for telehealth and, the, and reimbursement and everything that's happened this year, what would those be?
3: Five takeaways. Um, I would say, you know, one, as a broad matter, increased telehealth utilization is, is likely here to stay. I think when, you know, when we've seen kind of the data, there was a huge surge initially. And while it's tapered a little bit as well, you know, this last COVID surge, as more people received in-person care, there was still a substantial amount of services of, of increase in telehealth utilization. So that is a service that's there to stay. Um, I would say, you know, secondly, it's you know really important to kind of understand um, you know what services will be made permanent and what services you know may be just temporary, so that. You can plan accordingly in the way that you're delivering care. If you need to make changes to your practice, that you're doing so in the best way that meets the needs of of your practice and your patients, both now and moving forward. Um, I would say three. One of the some of the questions we, you know we still get from from CMS and uh, from Congress are you know what are the most clinically appropriate scenarios to use telehealth? Um, when when is it clinically appropriate to use audio only services? So. The more we can get that information from our members about how it's being used and what are the best uses of telehealth, the better we'll be able to advocate and get that message to those stakeholders. I would say the same thing goes kind of as number four. They're they're always very interested in utilization. Is telehealth being used in addition to in-person services or is it a substitute? And that's you know what's gonna go into a lot of the evaluate the the evaluation of the policies moving forward. Um, you know, and then finally, you know, I think it's really important that we, you know, we continue to remove a lot of the barriers to care, things like making sure that NPs are able to practice across state lines, because a lot of the conversations regarding telehealth are going in that direction. Um, and how can we make it kind of a universal nationwide service where clinicians can go state to state? So removing those barriers that impact NPs is a really com- important component of that.
0: And so that's a, that brings me to my next question. And I see a lot of NPs asking. I live in, for example, Oklahoma, and I want to see a patient that lives in Arizona. Can I see that patient? So, what does that answer?
3: The answer is it depends. Um, it depends <laughs> what state you're in. It depends what state you're trying to provide care And You know, this is a, really want to um, promote our the work our state team has been doing on that front because they've been tracking the state by state changes on telehealth and, and really all other waivers and flexibilities, which is. A much bigger lift than just tracking the federal government, I can say. so real big kudos to them. Um, but again, you know want to plug the AMP state resources page because if you have those questions as an MP you can go you can track the waivers that they've put on and you know in, in the event you can't find what you're looking for. you know we're always available as a resource to look and track that down for you but but really want to um, promote you know the work that they're doing because they've been an invaluable resource um, both within AMP and and outwardly to our membership.
0: Yeah. And we'll share those resources. And of course, people can reach you at reimbursement at aanp.org. You know, Frank, this has been a great conversation and your team does a great job at unpacking everything related to reimbursement. And certainly this year, with so many changes, you've really stayed abreast of all of the issues. So I want to thank you uh, for joining us today.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sophia. Mm
0: Well, thank you so much to all of our guests today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and gaining your perspective and insights. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and can apply some of what was discussed into your own practice. If you'd like to connect with telehealth experts and other NPs with similar interests, remember that the AANP Health Informatics and Telehealth community is available to you. Visit aanp.org forward slash communities to learn more. The annual AANP Health Policy Conference is going 100% online for 2021. Register beginning January 5th and access all of the sessions for two full weeks to learn about the legislative issues impacting you and your patients and gain the skills you need to be an advocate for the NP role. And lastly, if you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AANP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. There's never been a more critical time to join together for the health of our patients. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues and check back each month for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. (laughs)